Welcome to Cornerstone, where we are seeing lives changed through the truth of God's Word and the love of God's people. We're glad you've joined us. Today, we'll be hearing from our lead pastor, Daniel Ostendorf. Listen in and be encouraged as we spend some time in God's Word together. A couple of things are especially sweet this morning. Our youth were together this weekend. Actually, our girls specifically were here on campus this weekend being discipled, being poured into. And they had an incredible weekend. Thanks to the Bryants for hosting a bunch of teenage girls in their house for a weekend or for a night. Um, but they had a great time. So, so excited. If your daughter got to be involved in that, I hope they were encouraged, challenged, equipped to live more faithfully for Christ. The other thing that's exciting this morning is it's so good to see Robert Sims up here playing. Robert was one of the first people at Cornerstone I ever spoke to. I still vividly remember sitting in my car because my boss didn't yet know I was looking at another job and having the first interview conversation uh, with Robert. Um, And then a couple, what, eight weeks ago, two months ago, he was building a guitar and there was a router accident and he hurt his finger to the point where we weren't sure he would ever play again. So, so thankful he's up here playing with us this morning, and uh, Robert will always have a special place in my heart uh, as the first guy I got to meet at Cornerstone. He represented you well, so, which is great. I wanted to give you, a, before we jump into today's passage, give you kind of a, a strategic perspective on this fall, uh, especially the fall festival. You know, there's two tendencies that a church can do. One, they can be so inward focused on equipping their own that they never look outward. The other tendency and the other extreme is we're so focused being outward that we never call our people to go deep and we never disciple and grow deeper. And the challenge for a church is to do both these things intentionally, that we would disciple you and and help you mature in the faith as we talked about last week, while not forgetting that there are people around us in our community who don't yet know Christ and who apart from Christ are facing an eternal future apart from him in hell. And so this fall festival is really an important moment where we turn outward, and we say, God, you have placed thousands of people around us, 5,000 kids. Let us go out and reach them, invite them onto our campus that we might build a relationship with them, that we might begin watering and planting seeds, that they might come to know you through the gospel. So that's October, and that's what makes us so strategic. The fall festival has an eternal importance. Is not simply to say we're one more church in the area checking the box. The other thing that we're doing then is in November, we're actually going to invite you. You'll find about this next week. We're inviting our church family away for a one-night retreat for us to build in relationships and go deeper. So then we'll turn back around in December for two outreaches. We have an outreach night to our community, and as you know, we have a guest musician who will come in in December to make a special morning to share the gospel. And so October, we're looking outward. November, we're going to pour back in so that when we get back to December, we're looking back outward. So as you invite people, as you pray and God say, who in my neighborhood, who at my work, who in my community would I invite to Fall Festival? See it as a strategic moment that God might begin a first step to maybe bringing them back in December that they could again hear the gospel, that they might come to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. I don't know for you, in this case for you, but for me, sometimes it's helpful to see how the pieces fit together. It doesn't feel like just one more thing we're doing. Well, as we jump in today, you know we've been asking this question in the last five months, six months since April. How do we remain faithful in the face of opposition from a world that denies Christ? And then in Second Peter, how do we remain faithful in the light of false teachers and false teaching within the church of Jesus Christ? I don't know about you, but I sometimes can feel a bit overwhelmed by this task. 
We have so much coming at us today from social media to news to, to written things to friends to opinions that it feels like discerning what is truth from error is exhausting. And then, hey, happy news from Second Peter. Not only do you have to do that in a world that you know doesn't accept Christ, but now you have to do it within the church itself and be on your guard. It can be exhausting. And if I'm honest, some days it can feel like I'm stuck in the middle of a storm and I don't quite know my way forward every time. I can't see my way forward. And I'm wrestling with what to do to remain faithful. Well, there's a story from just over 100 years ago that I think can give us a glimpse into what this can sometimes feel like. Alfred Lansing wrote a book called Endurance. It was about the English expedition to the South Pole over 100 years ago to cross the entire South Pole. Let me read a bit from his, his book. In 1914, Ernest Shackleton and a team of explorers set out from England to do something that no one before had accomplished, cross Antarctica from one side to the other across the South Pole. Well, disaster struck when the team's ship Endurance became entrapped in ice and eventually sank after her hull was crushed by the ice. Marooned on nearby Elephant Island, there seemed little hope for survival. In a desperate effort to get help, Shackleton and five others set out in a 20-foot lifeboat across some of the most dangerous and storm-filled waters in the world, on an 800-mile journey to South Georgia Island, where they knew help could be found. For 15 days, the men battled the treacherous seas and massive storms that brought waves up to 100 feet tall in their 20-foot boat. Using only a compass and a sextant, Frank Worsley, who had captained the Endurance, navigated their course until they safely reached land and found help. Shackleton was able to procure a ship, and returned to rescue all of his men from Elephant Island. As a result, he became a national hero in England for both his courage and his persistence. What must it felt like to be on that 20-foot dinghy in the midst of some of the most stormy waters in the world and wondering if you're headed in the right direction or if you'll ever make it? Sometimes I feel like our lives might feel the same way. In this life, there are so many voices claiming truth and competing for our attention that it can be hard to find our way through the fog. And that's exactly Peter's heart in First and Second Peter. How do you make your way through this world in which everything is competing for your attention? Well, what we learn from Ernest Shackleton's rescue of the, soul, uh, of the sailors is that he didn't follow his eyesight. He, he didn't follow his gut hunches. He didn't follow uh, what felt good. Oh, this just feels like the right direction. And he didn't follow what his men said to him. Did you catch the story? He followed a compass and a sextant, knowing they would point him in the right, true direction. Our world's going to make navigating this life difficult as a Christ follower. We know that from these letters. The world and even those within the church will try to cast doubt on our God and on his plan, on his character and his word. And what we're going to see in today's passage, 2 Peter 3, 1 through 10, is that Peter's going to remind us that we can trust God's promises, that we can trust in God's power, that we can trust God's patience, and we can trust his plan. So as we get ready to dive in, will you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the chance to open your word to, that we might hear from you and be conformed more into the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, as we were reminded by Paul in Ephesians 4 last week, I pray, Lord, that you would use this time in your word through the your work of your Holy Spirit, not only to mature us individually more into Christ, but mature us as a community, as part of your church, that we might become more the church you desire for us to be and reflect better to the world, our Savior, and the good news of the gospel. 
So Father, we thank you for the chance to open your word today, that you might speak to us. May we stand on it with confidence and sureness as we walk, for, walk with you and for you faithfully in this world. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, well, you may have remembered we started this whole journey of First and Second Peter back in April. For those of you who are ready for it to be over, next week's our last week, so there's the good news. This is the last of two weeks. We're going to finish up in chapter 3 this week and next week. And today we'll be looking at the first half of chapter 3 in Second Peter. But you might remember way back in April, I set a challenge for you to commit to memory First Peter 1, 3 through 5. I hope most of you have done it. Recently, I took back to seeing Jer- the song Jeremy wrote to my kids at night as they go to bed. So it's been a good reminder for me to reflect back on these truths. So here we go. You can say it with me, say it in your head if you know it, but here we go. First Peter 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. There's so much truth built into that, that we have been born again of what God has done, that we've been called to live and follow him faithfully, and that there is an inheritance waiting for us. And what we're going to see is that not only has Peter wound those threads through both letters, it'll show up again today in this part of the letter. If you don't have a Bible this morning, there's some Bibles on the back windows and back table. Feel free to grab one of those. All right, let's remind ourselves where we are. It's been a few weeks. Very first weekend in September, September 3rd, Dr. Terry Kochenauer preached here, middle of chapter 2, as I was out on vacation. You might remember that Terry preached on the authentic gospel, Know the authentic gospel, for then you can call out the false ones. And Terry in his sermon remind us that Christ is calling us not to just follow him faithfully day by day today, but he's calling us faithfully to follow him day by day because we're going to do that for all of eternity. So let us delight in following our Savior now, knowing that we will delight in following him forever. Then Sam, a couple weeks ago, Sam Placencio, our Hispanic pastor, preached on the last half of uh, chapter 2. You might remember that captivating story of the billions of dollars lost every year in fraud. As we talked about false teachers and and how they steal and take away from the church and and from Christ's followers. You might remember Peter, or sorry, Sam really focusing us in on this idea of when we say yes to sin, we think we're choosing freedom, but in reality we're enslaved to the very sin we desire. That it becomes our master rather than Christ. What was beautiful about both of these brothers in Christ preaching is that both of them turned us to the gospel of who God is, of our need for him, and how his steadfast, faithful love has made a way for us to faithfully walk with Christ. So today, we turn to the last chapter. We looked at false teachers. Now we're going to look at their false teaching in chapter 3. Now, before we dive in, it's always important to sort of say, okay, does this really matter for us? How important is this? This was written almost 2,000 years ago. Is this really pressing? Is this really something that even matters for us today? Now, part of you were saying yes, because that's the Jesus school answer, right? Like, that's the Sunday school answer. Of course it matters, right? We're supposed to say that. But let me give you a glimpse, because the truth is this matters desperately for us today. And sometimes we don't realize how much it does. In 2022, Legionnaire Ministries put out their most recent report on the state of theology in America. What they discovered is that there are a lot of key areas of theological, historical Christian truth that not only our world, but even those who claim to be evangelical Christians have gone astray from. 
Let me give you a few examples. I'll give you two from just Americans in general, and I'll give you two from specifically within the evangelical church. So uh, broadly, Americans in general across the United States, one out of two, nearly one out of two, believe that God changes. Despite Malachi 3, despite Hebrews 13, and the host of other reminders throughout Scripture that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, one out of two people you meet believe that God changes. Now think about that for a second. That's a radical problem. Because if God changes, that means he somehow is getting different or better. He can't be trusted. And and does he make mistakes? And and he's learning from his mistakes, so he changes and grows? If he changes, he's not eternal. He's not omnipotent. He's not not omniscient. And all of a sudden, we begin to undermine the fact that, can we really trust him if he changes? Well, I mean, I change, you change. So he's not really that different from us. So if we believe that God changes, we begin to undermine who God is, and we begin to put ourselves in his place. The report went on to say that two out of every three Americans, nearly 70% of Americans, believe that in the eyes of God, we're born good. God is the historic doctrine of original sin and the ideas that come with it. Just think about that one for a second. If we believe that we are born good, then the feelings and the impulses and the desires we feel like we've always had must be a reflection of that born goodness. So I'm going to chase the things that have always been a part of me because that's part of my goodness. The other thing that happens is when we believe that we are born good, you don't need the gospel. If I'm born good, you just have to kind of clean me up. But I'm actually good, so just wipe off the dirty stuff. And If that's what you believe, then you don't need Jesus Christ dying for you as the final substitutionary perfect atonement. Because you didn't deserve death. You were good. You just got a little dirty. Believing that we are born good undermines the gospel and it undermines the depth of our sin and depravity. As disturbing as those are, though, what we found about evangelical Christians, those who would come to a church much like this, I find even more troubling. Nearly one out of two Christians that would consider themselves evangelicals believe that God accepts the worship of all religions. So if today you're in a Muslim mosque and you're worshiping Allah, that's okay. God accepts that. You're still worshiping God. If you're a Hindu and you're worshiping one of their pantheon of gods, well, God still accepts that. He's good. He's gracious. He'll accept that. What's crazy about that thought is in order for you to believe that, you have to throw out huge parts of the Old Testament and huge parts of the New Testament that say, I am God alone and worship me alone. And yet one out of every two Christians who believe themselves to be evangelicals are comfortable saying, "Mm, no, that part of Scripture, that's wrong. God, God accepts all worship. When the Bible is made very clear, he does not. Here's one more for us. Within the evangelical church in America, 38% of people say that the religious faith is a personal thing, not an objective truth. If your faith in Jesus Christ is just a personal thing and it's not an objective truth, then why would you ever share it with anybody else? If there is not an objective truth that your sin has separated you from God and the only way to be reconciled and for that to be paid is Jesus Christ came and died for you. If that is not an objective truth that you are standing on, then there's no reason to share it. And you know what? Maybe the Muslims' personal faith will get them there too. When we begin to believe that faith is personal and is not based on the work of Jesus Christ as an objective reality, we no longer have a reason to share the good news of the gospel. And we buy into the truth that is just all about what we feel and believe. So I would argue that as much as ever in the history of the world, we've got work to do in America and in the Christian church 
to hold fast to the truth of God's word in the face of incredible lies. So with that, let's turn to 2 Peter 3, 1 through 10. All right, picking up in verse 1. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere way by, sorry, sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. I think Peter begins this, this passage with this question, how do we combat falsehood? And he quickly jumps into the answer in the first few verses with the truth of God's word. Take a look at verses one through three. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved, and both of them I'm stirring up your sincere way, mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. First of all, let's note that both letters have the same purpose, to remind us of that which is true. Peter throughout both First and Second Peter is not trying to teach us new things. He's trying to call us back to the truth of what God has already revealed. Notice we also get Peter's dear love for these believers. Beloved, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, I want you to catch this. And then he points back to the prophets. And in our modern way of thinking, we might read chapter, uh, verse 2 and say, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets. And, and we go immediately, to, okay, that's the major prophets and the minor prophets. Like, that's how that works, right? And I don't think so. I think that's actually sort of a, an overlap from our modern Bibles and the modern way we sort of structure some things. I think Peter here is referring to the entire Old Testament. The reason I think that is because Peter has intentionally, through this letter, mentioned both the Torah, the prophets, and the wisdom literature. No, sorry, the writings. In this letter, he is intentional to bring all parts of what we call the Old Testament, what was the Jewish scripture of the day, to bear on this call to faithfulness. And so Peter means, no, all of it. Everything that, that, the, that God has given us in scriptures, or what they would have called the scriptures, what we call the Old Testament today, which are still scriptures. I don't know why I'm getting tongue-tied up on that. Um, rest on that. But furthermore, on top of that, now add what Jesus, the commands of our Lord and Savior, is taught by his apostles. You might remember at the end of Matthew, Jesus says to his disciples, go out and teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. Peter is one of his closest disciples, is one of those apostles who's been teaching what Christ taught. And so we might wonder, okay, well, what are these commandments that Jesus taught that the apostles are teaching that are building on into uh, the Old Testament? Well, we see some of this in Matthew 24. Take a look at Matthew 24, 11 through 13. 
Jesus warns his disciples of these false teachers, for one. He says, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. As Peter writes this letter to call us, to remind us to be faithful to what Jesus Christ has called us to do, you can hear these words echoing. Jesus called them to endure to the end. Peter is calling these Christians, these beloved, to endure to the end. And we know from the Old Testament, we know from the Gospels, we know from uh, the first part of 2 Peter 2 that we're to expect false prophets and false teachers. And so Jesus told his disciples the same thing. And we'll take a look actually later on here in a second at the rest of chapter 24 because it's incredibly prescient for what we're looking at today. But before we do, I don't want to move on without reminding ourselves of Peter's heart. Take a look at 2 Peter 1, 12 through 13. It's been a while since we've looked at this. Here's what he wrote. He says, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. Remember that Peter wants to remind us of that which is true, and he will die within a couple of years of writing this letter. All right, well, what we see in the next eight verses is that four things are attacked by these false prophets. God's promises are attacked, God's power is attacked, God's patience is questioned, and God's plan is forgotten. So let's take a look at the first one. God's promises, picking up in verse 4. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, he said he would come. He hasn't shown up. Either Jesus wasn't the Messiah, or we can't really trust his promises. We can't really trust the prophets of old. We can't really teach the, trust the teachings of his apostles. Now, if you're new to the faith, you might wrestle with this a little bit. You're like, wait, where did Jesus say he was coming? I don't quite remember this. Well, it's in Matthew 24, the passage we just looked at a few minutes ago in which Jesus says false teachers will come. Take a look at this, Matthew 24, 30 through 31. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the earth. So the context here is, is the end of all things. And notice what Jesus then says three verses later in verse 34. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Like every good false teacher does, they grasp a verse, and they say, wait, but what about this? You can't trust God because this doesn't come true. And so both in our day-to-day, our day-to-day and Peter's day, people grabbed a hold of this verse and said, he said he was coming before this generation passed away. You know people have died who knew Jesus. Why hasn't he come back? Can't trust him. Indeed, we see a, a similar strategy in Matthew 4 when Jesus is taken out in the desert and he's tempted by the devil. What does the devil use to tempt him? The very words of God, right? So these false teachers are taking the words of God and saying, eh, must not be what we can, we can trust in. When you buy realty, right, the, the phrase is location, location, location. As a history professor and as a reader, the phrase is context, context, context. And what false teachers forget when they teach this verse in verse 34 about Jesus hasn't come back, he said he would, is they forget the context. I'll admit this is a hard passage to understand on its own. Jesus, you said you'd come back. Why haven't you come back? Why are we still here? 
But what we have to keep in mind is the context. Jesus knew that his disciples would die. He prophesied John's death. So what he can't mean here is that before this generation dies, before the people around me die, I will come back. In fact, he goes on to talk about the flood in this passage in Matthew 24 and and how it came all of a sudden and surprised everyone else except Noah and his family. So I'm going to give you one way I think you can understand this passage faithfully because what I don't want you to do is to leave here and be like, "Mm, man, how do we do that? We take generation as a generation of people, right? Before I pass away, Jesus will return. That's how we read this, right? Before the disciples pass away. I think probably what actually is happening here is before things move on from this age, Jesus came, he culminated the, 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 the kingdom of God. He says, before this age passes away, before all moves on to eternity, the next age, these things will happen. Before this generation, before this age, before this thing I've inaugurated, comes to an end, you will see all these things happen. But false teachers love to grab a verse like that, take it out of context, and make us question God's promises. You might notice this actually in the next, very, the next verse, right? Because the false teachers go on to say, for ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were. What are they saying? They're saying, ever since the fathers of the Old Testament passed away, God hasn't done anything. God hasn't changed the game. He hasn't shown up. If you know anything about the first century world, you can understand this. There was this 400 period of silence, right, between, between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. And there was this feeling in those of the day that said, God's abandoned us. God's forgotten us. And so guess what? These false teachers seize hold of that, that doubt, that question about God. And they say, yep, you're right. He's not doing anything new. He hasn't changed. But do you hear what happens when you accept that as true? What does it do to Jesus Christ? It takes him away. If you don't believe, if you don't believe that God has done anything new since Abraham and Moses and all of them and, and Jacob and Israel died, then you don't believe the Messiah has come. Because the Messiah coming is the greatest thing God ever did. Sending his own son, God incarnate in the world, to change the game. And these false teachers saying, no, the game hasn't changed. It's still the same. Jesus wasn't the Messiah. I mean, look, what he said about coming back, he hasn't come back. He can't be the Messiah. Nothing's changed. So not only do these false teachers undermine the promises of God, they undermine the Messiah, the promise that God would send one to redeem us. So the question that arises for us is, all right, in a world of false teaching that tries to, seeks to undermine the promises of God and our trust in them, how do we live? What's the antidote? The antidote is to trust in what God has said, regardless if it makes sense, regardless if we can figure out how all the pieces fit together. There's this great word, and I know I've used it in a sermon before, but the perspicuity of Scripture, that which is essential for our faith is clear. doesn't mean everything's clear. There are things in Scripture we will understand only when we get to heaven, but that which is essential is clear. So we do what's right in light of God's word, and we trust his promises. And we be on our guard when anybody tries to undermine them. Well, the other thing that gets attacked by false teachers is not only God's promises, Jesus can't be the Messiah. They attack God's power. Take a look at verses 5 through 7. They deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, that is the word of God, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, right, the point here is the word of God, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment. 
Two things, two things, three things, three things to notice in this section. First, they deliberately overlook this fact. Every false teacher will deliberately overlook things that are inconvenient for their false teaching. Ah, I really don't want to handle that. I don't want to mess with that. Like, we're going to deliberately overlook that. But even more to the point, what are they deliberately overlooking? They deliberately overlook God's power. That God in his very word created the world, and in his very word destroyed the world in his flood, and in his very word is holding the earth ready for judgment again. The psalmist in Psalm 33, 6 tells us this, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. The power of God's word is not to be questioned. It is mighty. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 11.3 tells us this. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Do you catch it? God just had to speak. And things that are impossible for us happened. And yet these false teachers begin to undermine and question the power of God. So Peter wants to remind his readers, don't forget. The God you worship is the God whose very word spoke the world into existence. And did you catch that last part that makes us maybe a little uncomfortable? By his very word, the world will be destroyed. Judgment and wrath will be poured out. By the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire. This is an echo, right? We see this throughout the teachings of Jesus' apostles in Romans 2. We get this. Because of your hard and penitent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. In Jude, we learn that God has actually um, imprisoned demons and part of the devil's demons for the day of wrath. A day of wrath will come. And these false teachers would have you question God's power both to do great things, but his power to bring justice. So what is our antidote, our antidote, antidote? for questioning the power of God in false teaching, or when false teachers question the power of God. It's to rest in who he is, to rest in the power of his word, that what he has done he will say, and what he has said he will do, he will do, and he is capable of doing it. That there is a judgment that's coming, so we don't need to worry about that. God will bring justice and judgment. We rest in who he is when his power is undermined. Well, the third thing that the false teachers questioned was God's patience. And we can maybe appreciate this one more than any of the others because the truth is we're an impatient people. Take a look at verses 8 through 9. Do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I want you to do a mental exercise for me. Think back on your week to a time when you were impatient or restless. Was there something that you chose to microwave rather than heat up on the stove or in the oven because you just didn't have the time to heat it, and so as a result, you settled to chew something chewy that you got out of the microwave? Did you decide to listen to something on one and a half or two times speed in an audiobook or a podcast because it would take too long to sit with it and as a result, you can't remember anything you heard. Did you drive somewhere you could have walked or biked because it would take so long? Really, just a couple more minutes out of your day. Did you purchase something on Amazon because it meant you could get it the next day rather than a week from now? Now, I'm not saying that any of these things are wrong. Efficiency in and of itself is not a wrong thing. 
But where these point to an impatient spirit and impatient heart, that's what we need to check. Because the truth is, where we're impatient in life, we're probably impatient with God. We're probably impatient with our relationships with one another to the detriment of those relationships as well. The truth is, though, here's the good news, maybe, sobering news. We're not the only ones. You might remember a story from the Old Testament, right? Paul, uh, Peter's calling them to think back to the, the prophets of old. In Exodus 32, what happens? Moses goes up to the mountain to meet with God. 30 days later, he hasn't shown up, and the people grow impatient. And what do they do in the middle of this passage? They, they say to Aaron, hey, uh, make us gods. Who shall go before us? As for this Moses, this man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. The people become impatient, and it leads them to one of the worst decisions they could have made. Even more so, this passage gives us a glimpse of how they've lost sight. In their impatience, who do they credit for rescuing them from Egypt? Moses. Moses didn't bring the ten plagues. Moses couldn't have part of the Red Sea. But the people not only grow impatient with Moses, they grow impatient with God. And they lose sight of the God who had rescued them. So impatience is a core part of who we are as broken, sinful humans. But I've got good news. Patience is a core aspect of who God is. Notice the language here from 2 Peter. Do not overlook this one fact. False teachers deliberately overlook the fact of God's power. You, beloved, don't overlook the fact of God's patience. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness. Just two chapters after this part where the people are impatient, we get one of my favorite passages in the entire Old Testament. Exodus 34. Moses is up on the mountain, and God reveals himself for the first time, describing himself. It is a beautiful passage. Here's what he says. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We are an impatient people, loved by a patient God. I don't know about you, but I look around at the world around me. I look at how sin abounds in the lives of those I love. I look at the false teaching within the church. And, and I look at, at what's happening in our world, and I grow impatient. I want things to stop. I want false teachers to have a heart attack so they can't teach false things. I want the sin in our world to go away. And if that means opening up the world and swallowing the people who are leading us there, I want that to happen. I get frustrated and impatient, if I'm honest. And yet, Peter here is reminding me that I worship and am loved by a patient God. You see, in, in my impatience to get things fixed right now and right away that would make my life easier, I forget what that would mean. It would mean that some wouldn't come to know Christ if Christ were to come back today. I forget that if Christ had chosen to come back on August 10th, 1983, I would not have been born and I would not know him. If Christ had chosen to come back before 1989, I would not have come to know him as my personal Lord and Savior. I get impatient because I see a world who's broken, that's broken, and I hate seeing it. I have a Heavenly Father who sees everything. He sees every person trafficked. He sees every person abused. And in his patience and his great love, he doesn't end it all. Now, one day he will, but he doesn't yet. And in my impatience, I would take from others their opportunity to respond to the gospel. Let me give you an example of where my impatience gets me in trouble. 
There's a story, Charles Francis Adams, son of President John Quincy Adams and grandson of President John Adams, kept a diary. In his diary, he wrote this. Went fishing with my son today. A day wasted. His son, Brooke Adams, also kept a diary, still in existence, and you can read it. And on that very same day, the entry that Brooke Adams wrote went, went fishing with my father, the most wonderful day of my life. In my impatience, I think God's wasting his time. And in my Heavenly Father's great love and patience, more are coming to know him because he's patient. And I will see people in heaven because I have a patient God that I would not see if God followed my impatient spirit. What incredible God we serve. So what's the antidote for our impatience in the face of a patient God? When we in the world says, look, he's so slow, why isn't he doing anything? The antidote is to remember who he is. To trust his perfect timing, to trust his patient love. That Jesus, in Jesus we meet a God who prays for his enemies and those who persecute him. And Jesus, we're told in Luke, that it was just at the perfect time that Christ came. We meet a God whose timing is perfect and whose patience is so much greater than ours. But that patience will not last forever, and here's the sobering piece that we end with. The last place that false teachers attack and that we often forget is God's plan. Take a look at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Here's the reality of verse 10. I'm going to use a theological, theological word. I will define it for you in a second. Eschatology matters. Eschatology is the study of last things. Last things matter. Because we live this life in light of what will happen. And if we, like too many in America, believe that everyone's going to end up in heaven regardless of who you worship and what you believe, and it's, it's personal, then we don't tell people about Jesus. But if we believe that there is a day coming when everything will be burned up and there is judgment and people will go to hell because they didn't know Jesus, then we live this life differently because we want them to join us and to know him. Notice that Peter isn't consider, concerned with the details of when and how, but he's very concerned that it would shape the way we live. The truth is there will come a day when everything around us is, is burned up and destroyed. There will be a new heaven and a new earth, and this is not the one that we're living on. Early on, we learned in chapter 2 that false teachers teach falsehoods because of their greed. They're chasing the things of this world. If we're honest, we chase the things of this world too, the things that will be burned up and destroyed one day. Even more, what we learn in this passage in verse 10 is not only will the things that we've chased after be burned up and destroyed, but all the things done in secret will be exposed that nothing will go on hidden forever. And so here's the reality of God's plan. God's plan for a final judgment should change our priorities because it changes our perspective. I don't know about you, I can get on social media and I can begin to get restless when I see friends in the Alps or my favorite city in the world, Paris. And I want to go do that. I want to start saving up and I want to make that happen. And then recently I've been reminding myself Lord, the truth is, whatever's worth doing in this life will be available to do in the next life. 
We spend all of our time and our energy and our money chasing things now out of fear that we won't get to do them in eternity. Guys, if it doesn't matter in eternity, it shouldn't matter now. This is a very small window. But the truth is we have a new heavens and a new earth, and guess what? We're going to to explore that new heavens and new earth, and it's going to be incredible. And so my love for the mountains can be put to the side because I get to spend eternity exploring mountains without sin impacting them. You see, what we believe about judgment and what comes after changes our perspective and our priorities. Time and time again, Peter has returned to the story of Noah's flood. And I want to remind you of a passage from 1 Peter 3, 18. Here's what he said. He said, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Guys, he suffered for us that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Peter says, be like Noah. Even if you're the one of eight that's faithful, work, call others to repentance, knowing that there is a day coming when the floods will come, although it won't be floods, it'll be fire, and all will be destroyed. Let the end of all things shape your perspective and your priorities. Uh, Earlier this year, a couple months ago, I guess, Jeremy wrote a song, um, and in it he wrote these lyrics. I don't think about heaven enough. I'm caught up in all this temporary stuff. So what's our recap for the day? We started with the story of uh, lost explorers in Antarctic trying to make it through terrible seas, and how did they do it? They had their eyes, they, they used two tools that pointed them the truth a compass, and a sextant. Peter has given us four tools to remind us of what it means, to, what it looks like, and how we can remain faithful in the face of false teaching. So here they are. Peter's reminded us to trust in God's promises. He's reminded us to trust in God's power and God's patience and in God's plan. To trust in his promises means to trust in his word. To trust in his power is to know that he is a God that will and does act for justice and judgment will come. To trust in his patience is to trust his perfect timing and his gracious, patient love. And to trust his plan is to live in light of it. There's a joke going around. I actually probably make this joke more than anybody else. But uh, my predecessor loved his alliterations. I feel like there's some point where you level up as a pastor. I don't know if it's year five, year ten. I don't know when the Spirit will give me the gift of alliteration. If that's a gift, I don't know. But this morning is one of those rare moments where it all kind of aligns. So here we go. A lot of peace for today. God's pro- let's trust in God's promises, God's power, God's patience, and God's plan. For they change our perspective and they reshape our priorities. Say that five times fast. I don't know if you know this, but or you recognize this, but this is actually the gospel. Peter is reminding his readers and us of the truth of the gospel. God made a promise that he would send a Messiah to redeem us. God had the power and has the power to do it, laying down his own life once and for all for us. And in God's patience, he waited for us to accept him, that we might be a part of his perfect plan with eternity in mind. We're about to take communion, so I'm actually invite the ushers to go ahead and start passing out the elements. If you don't know Christ as Savior... You might think about communion as like, ah, this is just that weird thing we do where we drink juice and we eat bread. But if you know Christ as Savior, this is a celebration of all that Christ has done. 
of a God who made promises and carried them through with his power and his patience that we might be a part of his great plan. So if you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, I want to invite you to place your trust in him, your trust in this God whose promises and power and plan and patience is perfect and who's made a way for us. Go ahead and grab the elements and hold on to them. Thanks again for spending some time with us today. For further information about today's podcast or our church in general, please visit us at cornerstonecbc.org. That's cornerstonecbc.org. Thanks. See you next time.